Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to a bonus episode of Freedom Books, Flowers and the Moon. A week or so ago, the Amani novelist Jocko Alhati and the translator Marilyn Booth won the Man Booker International Prize for Fiction for the novel Celestial Bodies, an account of three sisters living in the village of Al-Awafi in an Oman on the brink of change. A couple of days after the announcement at Waterstones Bookshop in Piccadilly, the winners spoke to the Turkish novelist Elif Shafak about the novel, Arabic culture and modernisation, translation and women's wisdom. What follows is a recording of that conversation. I'm, I'm very excited to share the same stage with Marilyn, with Joka. It's, uh, it's wonderful that literature does indeed transcend boundaries, right? Mental boundaries, including also um, national boundaries, religious and ethnic boundaries. This is what we firmly believe in, that, that storytelling can do this. So it's wonderful news. You are the first female Arab author who has got the, this, this prize. I also want to mention that you come from a family of strong women. You mentioned earlier that your aunt, who is around the same age as Joka, has climbed the Mount Everest, yesterday, right? Yesterday. yesterday, it's amazing, amazing news. <laughs> so, so it's clearly a family of strong women, generations, and, and, and I salute that, definitely. I also want to start with three cheers. Of course, one for you, Joka, one for you, Marilyn, and my third cheer is for the publishing house, which is a, relatively speaking, small independent publishing house based in Scotland, in, in the Highlands, and I'm sure they're also very happy and very thrilled. They made the connection, and we're very grateful to them and their team for, for their work. If that's okay, I want to start with, with language, and maybe with you, Marilyn. You know, as a writer who commutes between languages, Turkish and, and English, I pay attention to those words and concepts that can't be translated very easily from one language to another. So maybe that's going to be my, my first question to you. What are the challenges as you are commuting between two languages? And when I say this, I'm also very much aware as a novelist that we owe the translators we work with 
a huge, huge thank you. And I have seen books that are not as good in their original as in their translated form, to be, to be perfectly honest. You know, we always talk about what's lost in translation, but I think it's time to talk about what's earned and gained in translation, because there's definitely an amazing work of creativity that goes into the process of translation. And I don't think it's enough to know. You know, you might be speaking two languages, three languages. That doesn't mean you can translate from those languages. It's a different type of creativity. So may I start with you? Yes, yeah. um, thank you. Um, it's a great question. And I think there are many answers. And I can only uh, say a couple of things here. But one of the things I love about translation is precisely that question of how you translate things that just seemingly can't be translated and how do you do that and as translators i think we have a number of different strategies and different works call for different you know different strategies and for me the way i translate in each case starts with the voices in the book i think about the voices the narrator's voice the author's voice in a sense the characters um, and to, I try to think about what those voices demand and what this means, or one of the things it means for me is that in some works, I leave more Arabic in the English text and I try to work with it. I try to make that Arabic intelligible within the text to the English speaking reader because obviously you don't want to leave people frustrated or alienated or having to run to Wikipedia when they're in the middle of writing a novel, reading a novel. Um, but at the same time, I, I think as a translator, I probably tend to leave more Arabic in my text than some others do. Um, because I also care about enriching English and introducing readers to new words and concepts. So, there are different categories. There are, so there are Arabic words that really describe, describe things or feelings or people or whatever it may be that really can't be translated. So for instance, um, one sort of easy example from Jocha's novel is felaj. Felaj means canal, but if you just translate it canal, it's just it's not rich enough. It's not going to get across the whole meaning of this because a felaj is, felaj also refers to this whole extremely complicated irrigation system in Oman, and which means it also refers, in a sense, to a kind of social cooperation because it takes incredible organization and cooperation to maintain and work with this system of canals, but it's also these canals are, they're partly underground and then partly above ground. And I decided to retain the word falaj in the novel because I thought, here's a very specific Omani um, aspect of, of life, of daily life. And I think rather than trying to just use the rather boring English word canal, it's better to, to use the Arabic. Then there are other cases where I leave Arabic in because it's part of the dialogue. So in particular in this novel, when, particularly when groups of women are talking, I, try, I, I very much sort of try to reproduce their speech patterns, their, um, their expressions. And so there are just these different categories of things that I think I want to work with in the Arabic rather than actually bringing into the English. 
And then there are the other things that really you just can't figure out how to translate in a way that makes sense. And one of those is the original title of this novel. So our English title is a bit different. The Arabic title is Sayyidat al-Qamar, which is a brilliant title in Arabic. I absolutely love it. And I just spent, oh, I, I was, yeah, I was, I was just tormented by what to do. It just doesn't, it would literally translate as either ladies of the moon or mistresses of the moon. And it just doesn't work in English because Sayyidat has other connotations of authority, of strength, of dignity that I don't think really come through in the English terms. So we decided to go with a, a, a title that was more different. I'm sorry, that's, I've probably gone that's on too beautiful. long. <laughs> that's, that's beautiful, thank you. Joka, uh, there's something, I'm, I'm, I'm curious and I want to he hear your thoughts. When I, I realize over the years, if I'm writing about melancholy, sadness, sorrow, I find it easier to express these things in Turkish. But when it comes to humor, irony, satire, I find it easier in English to express. So to me, it's always fascinating to see how also we change as we move from one language to another. We don't have to be fluent. We can be latecomers, you know, in another language. There will always be a gap. But we also maybe earn another zone of existence, a space, an additional space, and it affects the way we think. So I was wondering, what is your relationship, first of all, with your mother tongue? Do you maybe, like Mahmoud Darvish, think that the mother tongue is the homeland, is where we belong? Or do you see yourself maybe commuting between languages? Or do you see yourself expressing different feelings, perhaps more easily, in different languages, even if you do not write in, in different languages? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, for me, Arabic is my passion, and I agree with Mahmoud Darwish, it is homeland. And uh, in a way, it's, it's great for a writer to be in love in his language, but at the same time, that creates, in my case, difficulty in other languages that I try to, to learn, not many, I mean. But uh, uh, because I, in Arabic, I, I, I always want to be perfect in, and very precise in what I want to say. And I can't do that in other language. So actually it's, uh, it's torturing in, in a way if you are really in love in what, in what of course you can speak 10 languages and you can be in love with all of them. But what I, I wanted to say, if you grow up with this you know, obsession with, with words and language and just, just see the beauty of it in every word and then you, uh, you are trying to express yourself in, in other language and you feel that you are paralyzed because you can't, you can't be that good to to and and you can't seize that beauty. Uh, you need to to learn more and to you, you see. So uh, yeah, so that was like uh, really difficult for me when I first had to speak English, and that happened very late in my life. Actually, I mean, we learned English in in school, but it was just like you know, listen that I always sleep in, so I, I didn't care that much at that at that time. Uh, but then here I am in 2005 in Edinburgh, and I had to write PhD in English. <laughs> 
So yeah, yeah. So that was difficult, though I enjoyed very much in, in reading and everything. So I don't think that I I, I would write in other language, uh, but I very much appreciated what Marlene did, and I can see if 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 somebody else did it, then I can see the beauty. I I'm happy. I'm <laughs> I can I can I can feel in love with it and everything. But if I had to write it, that's torture. Absolutely. I understand. <laughs> On that note, would you like to share with us? You know, just we would love to hear the sound of your voice. Yeah. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Jocha is going to read a couple of pages, first in Arabic, and then I'll, at some point, read um, in English the same passage. And I just want to set it up a little bit for you. Um, we're going to be reading from a section that comes fairly late in the book. It's told from the point of view, not the narration of, but the point of view of Zarifa, who is an older woman and an ex-slave, but who has chosen to remain with the family that she has been with for a long time. And she is coming back from the wedding of Esma, who is one of three sisters who are at the center of the story. She's also, so she is, yeah, she's the former, a former slave in this household the, the three girls I mentioned, their father actually was raised by Zarifa, um, Abdullah. Um, and Abdullah is the son of merchant Suleiman, of some a traditional merchant. And Zarifa is also merchant Suleiman's lover or mistress or whatever word one wants to use. مستيقظا بانتظارها إنه يحب خاصة أن يأخذها بعد الأعراس لزينتها ولروح التجاذب التي تشعها أجواء الزواج الجديد Zarifa returned home from Esma's wedding in a state of collapse prompted by all of the dancing, singing and constantly serving guests but merchant Suleiman was wide awake and waiting for her he particularly liked taking her when she had just come back from a wedding, both because she was still in her outside finery 
and because she carried with her the allure of the new marriage, which excited him. Zarifa wanted badly to get some rest, but she, she gave him what he wanted as quickly as she could, and then he did fall asleep. She thought she would drop off immediately too, but a sense of unease was edging its way into her, though she couldn't pin down the source of it. Weddings didn't bring her the pleasure they once had. And, as proud as she could be of how true her dance steps still were, she really had gotten too heavy for such things. Anyway, what more did a wedding really hold for her than the endless service she had to give to the women who were there as guests, constantly supplying them with food and drink, and on top of that, the dancing and singing and all that gossip as well. There was no real pleasure to be had in weddings anymore, only in czar exorcisms. Those endless ceremonies intoxicated her. Everything from the grilled meat and the drinking to the heavy and incessant pounding of the drums until the ecstasy of it all lifted her outside of herself, beyond consciousness and into one sort of trance or another. In such a state, she might walk across the co live coals or lie beneath horses' hooves or roll in the dirt under the careening circles of dancing bodies. Her mother, God be merciful to her mother, had been the Tsar's big mama, the one who decided on when to hold one of those events in the first place and then who presided over them. She was the medium, after all, the woman in direct contact with the jinn who had attached themselves ruthlessly to the human beings writhing on the hot coals. So let Merchant Suleiman whip her for an absence of two or three days while she was immersed in the czar. Let him accuse her of playing around with one of his slaves. Let him curse her mother as the child of generations of runaway slaves. Let him do whatever he might, but she simply couldn't put an end to these raging, blistering ecstasies. Even Habib, her former husband, couldn't keep her from going. She'd leave no newborn Sanjar there next to him and slip out silently during the night to join her mother. Habib never did anything to bring himself any pleasure, she told herself, and so he didn't want anyone else to get any joy out of anything. If it weren't for this unmanageable son of his, she would have forgotten him completely. He was a lot younger than she was. From his mother, he inherited his pale skin and short stature. When he clutched her, she felt like she was being held by one of the teenage sons of Sheikh Said, who used to put their hands on her when she was barely a teenager, before Merchant Suleiman bought her. She made her aversion clear in every possible way until Habib left her, before she could cause a total scandal, acting as her mother had done with her own husband, Nalseeb. Before long, Habib was gone. She thought she was well rid of him, no longer forced to put up with the way he screamed from the depths of his sleep, we are free people, free. No longer forced to listen to his ravings about the corpses that were thrown into the sea, the pirates, the eye disease. But here was his son turning out exactly like him. Sanjar too would run away before long and her heart would burn with grief. If only she had never had him. It still made her groan to remember the long hours of labor and Sanjar's difficult birth. Her mother tried everything to ease the way. She made Zarifa drink a rotten-smelling viscous oil, followed by water into which was mixed soil from a grave, and then more water, this time collected from the dirt floor of an abandoned and collapsed mosque. She made her drink the dissolved leaves of a lotus tree and honey over which Judge Yusuf had recited verses from the Qur'an. She even turned Zarifa upside down, so frantic was she by this point. When she despaired completely, she said to her daughter, your grandmother died giving birth. Death is fate. 
But Zarifa did not die, nor did the baby. Ankabuta, the mother of Zarifa, Ankabuta stuck her hand up the birth passage, tugged until the bluish flesh, flesh appeared, and slapped the shapeless thing several times until life surged into it. She performed the date-in-the-mouth ritual, tossed the baby into Habib's hands, and buried the afterbirth under the threshold after smearing it with ashes and salt. She sprinkled the soft sand around exhausted Zarifa with water, gave her fenugreek and clarified butter to drink, placed a knife at her head to ward off any evil magic that might be making its way to her or the baby, and went home to sleep after a vigil that had gone on for several nights. The book has so many fascinating women, female characters. And I want to talk a little bit about that. Of course, Zarifa primarily, and, and we need to talk about slavery, her role as the other women. But maybe before coming to that, the three sisters, right? Maula, Asma, uh, and, and, and the construction of womanhood, the complexities. To me, that was, that was very important. Oftentimes, people tend to think that Muslim women are just one type and, you know, a monolithic group. I hear that a lot. I think about my own mother, my own grandmother, the way I was raised. You know, they're completely different. My mom, very secular, westernized, urban. Grandma, pretty much the opposite, very spiritual, very irrational. So you look at your own families, and, and I don't know if you would agree, but then you think... Even if these two women, you know, if they are so different, how can we generalize Muslim women in just one, one uh, category? What is your experience growing up? Did you grow up in a family with, you know, observing these complexities? And do you see maybe, not a paradox, but this difference between how matriarchal our families, our households can be, even though the rest of the society is quite patriarchal. But inside the house, especially older women have so much respect and autonomy in a way, which I find very interesting. I don't know if that resonates with you. I grew among very strong women and weak women as well. And I, I have seen uh, different types uh, of people and but now we are talking about women so different types of women so for example I have seen uh, former slaves and at the same time I have seen princesses who were locked in their we call husan which is like um, yeah kind of fortress they and they didn't know that they were locked uh, they, 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 they thought that this is the life. And uh, then I, I, I also saw uh, young women who traveled very far away for education and uh, also old women who never touched any book in their lives and very poor women and very rich women. Uh, and I, 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 I observed how authority is obtained and is claimed in different levels. And even for, for Zarifa, she's, she's former 
slave, but she's much stronger than many characters in, in the novel. Um, uh, so yeah, I, I think stereotypes for me are funny. <laughs> I mean, people are people, and we all have boundaries, and we all cross boundaries. So there is a way or another to cross the boundaries, and. Uh, of course, appearance has nothing much <laughs> to tell. Uh, yeah, that's what. <laughs> Following up on that, with women, uh, again, I'm thinking about my grandmother's universe, this oral culture, you know, the accumulation of centuries of wisdom, storytelling, a very different type of storytelling. So I'm looking at Marilyn uh, for this question. Because I, and because also you're a scholar, of, of Arabic literature and you know the stories of the region so well. Do you think written culture appreciates enough that accumulation, that uh, beauty of oral culture? Or, or there, is, there a, is there a gap between the two? And how can we bridge that gap? That's a really excellent question. Um, no, I don't think that oral culture is appreciated oral culture is appreciated en enough. And I think there are many reasons for that. And some of them are connected very much with gender. I mean, my academic research centers on um, debates around sort of the status of women, the woman question, as it was called then, in the Arab world in the 19th century. And one of the things that I find over and over is that some of the kind of elite men and women of the time who are anxious for change and who are trying for modernization and calling for girls schooling, they're very negative about sort of women's chatter, quote unquote, and they sort of devalue, you know, devalue those oral networks of knowledge and culture, which is really an alternative source of wisdom and of history and so forth. So it's interesting, this is something I think that we find in so many times and places um, all over. And one of the many things that I like very much about Jocha's book is that it makes that, um, that oral culture, that wisdom, women's wisdom, very central. And for instance, um, there are lots of proverbs in the book, uh, which were fun to translate, because I tried to translate them in a form that would express the fact that they're a proverb, I mean, with rhyme and so forth. And that's a really condensed form of wisdom that is, of course, not only women use proverbs, men do too, but I think they're particularly associated with that oral culture. But I think also in Arabic, one of the the problems is that the oral culture is associated with vernacular Arabic, and there's a bigger gulf in Arabic between the vernacular, the spoken Arabic, and the sort of written um, language, the high Arabic, the high language. And so I think there's a double problem there with... Yeah, yeah absolutely. And of course, equally, you, have, uh, you deal with masculinity. You know how it's, how it's constructed, especially in Abdullah's story, father and son, what we take from our fathers, can we go beyond those roles? I found that fascinating, beautifully, beautifully told. And I want to talk a little bit about masculinity too. We do know that in patriarchal societies, women can't be happy, but men are not happy either, especially men who do not conform to that given definition of what masculinity should be like, for whatever reason. Uh, and sometimes they can be ostracized by women too. So it's very complex the way as women we take part in patriarchy 
And I, and I thought those layers were beautifully told in, in the book. Shall we talk a little bit about Abdullah and, and what it means, how it feels to be a man in a patriarchal society? Uh, yeah, thank you. Um, yes, I, I was thinking of uh, Abdullah. I don't want to, to, to say my own interpretation yeah. for, for his character, yeah. but it seems to me that he, he, because of his father and the way he yeah. treated him um, at one point, and uh, this is, wasn't uh, something from my imagination, actually, because some people in the past did... Uh, they, they, they thought that if this is a way to um, discipline... Uh, their 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 sons. So if uh, if the the boy did something terribly wrong, it's okay for the father to to uh, tie him and put him inside the well, and then there is a rope. He's holding the the rope, and the the the, the, the boy will be inside the well, just to frighten him. <laughs> and and that that was one of uh, other ways to that people th thought that it's okay. Some people, of course, not all of them. So, yeah, so I, 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 I thought about that, and uh, uh, Abdullah was, was treated like that by, by his father. And then he grew up and he fell in love. Uh, and, and unfortunately for him, unrequited love, though he married his, his lover, but, but still it was unrequited love. So, in, in, in a sense, it's, uh, I mean, um, for him, the, the hunger for acceptance is always there. And this hunger, I mean, he's a man, and in a society that gives him more authority than, than women, but he's, he's much, he is, he is. So, yeah, he, he's an he's, he's interesting character. Yeah, I thought that vulnerability was beautifully shown. Each time he asks his wife, do you love me? And the wife just laughs at the question, you know, the, the hurt there. It was beautifully told. But I think that is also the power of your book, not only the stories you're telling, the style, you know, your style. You deal with very difficult subjects, dark subjects, including slavery. And nonetheless, you tell them in a very gentle way, and the subtlety, you know, in the style, which I'm assuming must have been a further challenge for you, Marilyn, because how to convey that subtlety underneath, you know, all, while it, all these dark and difficult themes yeah. are running. Yeah, it's a challenge, but. Um, Jocha earlier said that she writes very precisely, and that is so true, and I am so grateful, <laughs> because in a way, it makes it easier. You know, when you have, when you're translating a writer for whom absolutely every word counts, it's, it's I guess, in a sense, more of a responsibility, or it's harder in some ways, but in some ways, it's, I mean, I much prefer it, you know, um, and I think, Again, one of the things I love about this novel is the different sort of styles and registers of language. So Jocha has a very, in a sense, very condensed, almost stark style of narrative at times, which can, can create um, can, or bring out paradoxes and ironies, and sometimes in a humorous way, actually. And then that contrasts, I think, with the um, the language of dialogue and the language of introspection, which is much 
sort of more fluid in a way, I would say. And I think, you know, the alternation or the, the sort of multiplicity of these voices is one way in which um, the, in a sense, the darkness of these topics comes out. But as you, as you put it beautifully, if they, it's, it's a sort of gentle, yeah. gentle way of putting it. Yeah. We've been talking about Abdullah. There's a, there's a moment when he praises God for giving us the ability to forget. And that sentence really made me pause and you know, read it again and think carefully. Coming from Turkey, I often say, you know, I come from a society of collective amnesia where we forget, forget history very fast. And I'm not talking about being stuck in the past, but being aware of the past, both the beauties and the atrocities, so as not to make the same mistakes ever again, hopefully. But we don't have that recollection. And I wonder if there is a similar uh, situation in your motherland, and, and do you find it important for writers to talk about memory? Is memory a responsibility for us to remember those stories which are also present in oral culture? Yes, yeah. yes of course it's easier to forget, forget and uh, yeah. to put your mind in ease, and, yeah. <laughs> and that's it, and just forget about. But uh, I think it's, uh, it's uh, for, for, for writers, I mean, it's our responsibility. It's it's and uh, they they have to remember and uh, and they have to remind also. And uh, of course there are uh, many points in in history in any country's history that uh, were dark points. And uh, somebody they simply deleted from for for example. Uh, Books, uh, book schools, <laughs> for from books that are taught in school, they simply delete it. We don't like this bit. Okay, delete it. So that's it. Uh, yeah, but uh, I think literature is the best platform to uh, discuss sensitive issues and uh, you know these dark points of history and mm -hmm. and so. And for me, I was always fascinating by the area, let's say, early 20th century until 60s mm -hmm. in Oman, uh, because uh, we don't know much uh, about that area, about that period, about that time, because uh, um, before that, it's, it's, there's a lot written about it. And after that, of course, uh, after 1970, there's a lot, of course. But uh, when I hear, for example, my grandmother talked about certain things that happened, I, I, I need sources for that. And uh, then I did research, and I, I did read about that period in the 30s and 40s. And uh, I did it again in my other novel, Naranja, where uh, one character, the main character, was born after uh, first war, first uh, in 1921 or so. So I needed to know how life was in Oman at that time. So I, I had to do research, and because people tend not to talk much about it. And that's the thing, isn't it? I mean, in history books at school, we only learn one version of history. But when we start asking small questions, you know, had I. Had I been a minority member, like I'm thinking about Ottoman Empire, had I been an Armenian silversmith, what would I think about that period of the empire? Had I been a Jewish miller, had I been a concubine in the haram, you know, what would their lives be like? When we ask small questions about human beings, 
then the story changes. Um, which perhaps brings us to the, one of the biggest subjects in the book, which is slavery. Uh, and is that one of the deleted chapters that you were, you were referring to? Yes. <laughs> well, you know, uh, slavery is not exclusive to Oman. Of course. I mean, it's, it's part of human history, unfortunately. Yeah. And, uh, but for me, growing up, seeing former slaves in, yeah. in Oman uh, was astonishing. And uh, I, I always think about, you know, freedom and what does it mean to be free? And 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 uh, so it's 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 very uh, difficult question since I was very little. And then uh, when you when you start to write about it, some people are, I mean, the reception is okay with some people, and but some people would think that now we are modern country and uh, we are living in modern society and we are moving f for f forward and why bringing such yeah. things from, you know, yes. Uh, is it to acknowledge it? And this is not good <laughs> to acknowledge. So, uh, so, so, yeah, it's uh, it's not easy thing to to handle, especially if you if you don't want just. I mean, um, I, I don't want just to scream in my in my writing. I don't like writing with scream. I like I like I like um, yes tone with I mean soft tones. So even this issue, even other, I mean. Uh, difficult issues. I, I prefer to write it in, in, in this uh, yeah. uh, quiet tone uh, and not just make. I, 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 I intend to make things not severe, like like a lot of torture. Everybody has his own uh, piece of torture in life, mm -hmm. so it's just different ways and different levels and different you know forms mm -hmm. so even for zarifa i mean she's f she, she's what she is and and she she and at this passage she she could find pleasure while other free people couldn't find any pleasure in life or so it's 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 uh, it's it's complicated and <coughs> but at the same time it's it's important for me to to bring it to bring it up and to to have this dialogue with these characters and try to to think how they would think and how they would feel. Maybe I can ask my next question to both of you. It's something that preoccupies me when I look at world literature. Uh, I'm amazed to see how identity politics does shape the way we are being perceived, sometimes even reviewed. We, and I want to give you an example, we don't, for instance, expect an Afghan woman writer to write science fiction. We don't expect an Afghan woman writer to write, you know, avant-garde, more experimental literary fiction. We want her to tell us the problems of being a woman in Afghanistan. We attribute a function, in a way, to fiction, especially for those writers who come from outside the Western world. I wonder, how do you feel about that? Do you think this is something we need to resist against as, as people who care about culture and literature? Of course, in one book, we can write about the women in our countries, but maybe in another book, we're going to write about something completely different. Uh, why shouldn't we have that kind of freedom 
is my approach. But I'm very curious about both your take yes. on that. I mean, for me, I, I totally understand that people from outside Oman would find the book interesting, particularly for its representation of certain culture or certain society. But I, I mean, for me, it's not just a represent. It's not a representation. It's fiction. So uh, taking it as a representation, uh, making it away from, you know, being fiction. Uh, uh, of course, I mean, we can't escape the, the, the localness flavor in it and everything which is meant to be. But at the same time, it, it's not just that. It, it, it's, a, it's a work of literature, and it should be treated that way. And uh, it's funny, we were talking, me and Marlene, about how some <coughs> publishers would just publish uh, works from countries that are in use. So if you have war in your country or, or women are forbidden from driving cars or, or things like this, then you're, you are welcome to publish your book. If you are not talking about uh, repressed women or, or these stereotypes, uh, then you are not welcome to publish your book. But uh, Marlene thinks I agree with her that this is changing. So You think that's changing? Yeah. I think it's changing somewhat and slowly and partially, and there's a lot more that needs to be done. I mean, you know, I, obviously the, one of the wonderful things about a prize like this is that it, it gives visibility to literary works that otherwise people might not know about, and that's fantastic. But what I hope is that it opens people up and opens publishers also to read more broadly, and, you know, not just the, the prize winner, not just the... Um, the shortlist, but other works that you know didn't get a prize but are equally wonderful and and worth reading. So I think I do think it's changing um, to some extent because more is being published, but I think it's still a big problem. And I think um, I think that representativeness is something that we need to always be vigilant about. Um, and and I I mean. To me, the way you know the best way to resist that is just to try to publish more things and get more voices out there and encourage people to read them. At least that's one way to. Definitely, do that. yeah. More, more stories to show the nuances, the complexity. That is changing. How about gender roles? Like again, I'm thinking about Turkey. In Turkey, a male novelist is primarily a novelist. Nobody talks about his gender. You know, you, they wouldn't even mention it. Whereas a female novelist is primarily a woman, you know, and I think it's interesting that across the Middle East I see this pattern: women get more respect as they get older, and maybe it's not a coincidence that many of us are trying to get as old, you know, as fast as we can. We want to age, <laughs> hoping that it might be easier. But joking aside. Uh, it's much harder for younger women. So youth is a big criteria because patriarchal societies do not respect youth. But of course gender is a big criteria. So my point is, do you see that difference, the way women writers are treated and, and male writers are reviewed, accepted in the literary world, not only in Oman, but across the Arab-speaking world? I'm curious about your experiences. Yeah, I, I, I have 
been always, I mean, uh, hearing things like that. And mm -hmm. but for me, I mean, I don't care about mm -hmm. these, you know, <laughs> gender yeah. things in writing. I. Yeah. I think writer is writer, and for me, I, I don't care when they when they're starting to saying like women writing. And if you, mm -hmm. I don't care. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What do you think, Marlene? Is well, there it's, a gender it's, gap. It's a big question. Yeah. I mean, I think there is, and I, but again, and, and again, it's not just in the Arab world. It's I think sure. all over. And one way that um, that we find it sometimes manifested, I think, is that people tend to assume more autobiographical content in women's writing than they do in men's. So, you know, they assume if a woman is writing a story, it must be her story. Her story. Whereas I don't think the same is expected of men. And so that's a, that's a big and very unfortunate distinction that we need to also, I think, um, resist. I mean, this one of the things that was really interesting this year with the Booker was that um, out of the six shortlisted authors, five were women. Out of the six shortlisted translators, six were women, yay. Um, so, so, you know, I, I don't know if that means anything, but I, it was nice. Yeah, when I first published my first novel, and uh, it was about love story, and the girl in the story lost her, her father in an accident, mm -hmm. and then her mother remarried again uh, very soon. And so she had to live with her father-in-law, mm -hmm. uh, which she didn't like it, mm -hmm. and uh, then so uh, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, so after <laughs> that book has been published, one uh, critic, he, he's, he's like a famous critic in, in, in Arab world, mm -hmm. and uh, he came to me and say, so Joha, I have a question for you. And I say, yes. He said, after your father died, <laughs> is your mother? <laughs> yes, he did that, and he's critic and famous one. And he said, is your, is your mother get married very soon? <laughs> and I was like, as, as far as I know, my father and mother are still together uh, <laughs> like like 50 years now. I mean, they, 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 uh, until last night they were together and that was like 50 years. I will check now and, and see if they that's, that's brilliant, exactly. We have to make that point again and again. We have an imagination, you know, we don't only write our personal stories, exactly. I think we need to bring it to an end. I just want to say, I hope Celestial Bodies will be translated into many, many languages. Uh, I would love to read it in Turkish as well. And Marilyn, Joka, we thank you so much for giving us such a beautiful book. Please join Thank you. Me. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.